You know, over the years, I have been encouraged and uh, motivated and challenged by this old quote uh, by the legendary John Wesley. And, and the quote goes like, like this, and I'm sure many of you have read it before or heard it. Yes, do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. And I'm sure someone, after hearing that, would say, oh, that's exhausting. (laughs) You know, two or three weeks ago, I asked myself the question, why did Wesley write these words in the first place? And a related question, what was going on in his life that inspired him to write these words? Now, I think I have a good answer to the first question, why did Wesley write these words? But before I share it, let me tell you a few things about this fascinating, very influential person named John Wesley. Some of you know a lot about him because some of you probably have some Methodist roots here today. But Wesley was one of 19 children. His mother was Susanna. Now, she must have been quite a lady. His dad was a minister in the Church of England a denomination, by the way, that Wesley stayed loyal to his entire life. And it was only his followers that got out there and started, you know, six different versions of the Methodist. His mother was an extremely godly woman. She was always pushing her sons and all her daughters towards Jesus and and a high degree of commitment. He also had a very famous brother. His name is Charles. And... I don't know how anyone could do this, but he wrote 7,000 poems and hymns. Like, how do you write one song, let alone 7,000? Like, what a gift. What an amazing, amazing gift. You know, uh, after graduation from um, Oxford University, where he got a very British degree in logic and religion, (laughs) after that, he became a follower of Christ. And also after uh, graduation, he started, well, he didn't, he led a club that his brother Charles started, and it was called, or nicknamed, the Holy Club. Now, I don't know if that would appeal to you. Would you join the Holy Club? I'm not so sure. But it was later nicknamed, or given another name, called the Methodists. I'm tongue-tied here. The Methodist, for their prescribed method of studying the Bible, which included rigorous self-denial and many acts of charity. But more significantly, his life and ministry was forever changed 13 years after he would say he became a follower of Christ when he was exhorted by a Moravian missionary by the name of Peter Buller who said to him, John, you need to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. For you see, up to this time in his spiritual journey, he really believed that he needed to do good works to be justified before a holy God. In other words, he didn't really understand grace. And I can understand that. I think I attended church for 21 years before I finally came into a full understanding of what it means to be saved by grace and not having to earn anything in God's eyes. Well, from that point on, John Wesley was a changed man. He traveled 250,000 miles on horseback, and we know that because he kept a detailed diary of his life, and so they could follow his travels. He also preached some 40, 
thousand sermons, often three times a day, which I can't get my head around. Three times a day? Where's the preparation time? These sermons must have just flown out of this guy. You know, and as a result of his life, he started really what you call the 18th century evangelical revivals. And they had such a huge impact on England. In fact, many historians will say that he kept the bloody French Revolution from coming to England. Which leads me back to the question, why would John Wesley say, do all the good you can by all the means you can and all the ways you can in all the places you can, in all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. Now, although I do not know what was going on in his heart and his mind on the day he penned these famous words, I do know from his writings what he believed about salvation and the place that good deeds should have in the life of the believer. To quote Wesley, Faith in Christ saves us from hell and sin for heaven and good works. You see, in the Wesleyan tradition, good deeds were the inevitable fruit of an experience of God's grace. In other words, you can't help yourself. Once you've experienced God's grace, good fruit will flow from your life. Well, this morning, I'd like to talk about what the Apostle Paul's New Testament letter to Titus has to say about doing good. I've encouraged you over the last uh, couple weeks here to read through this little letter. It only takes eight minutes if you're a slow reader. But it's a very short letter, 46 verses. But you know what? Seven of the verses talk about this theme of doing good. So this morning I'm going to read these seven verses. And I'm going to look at them all again. And maybe I'll go a little slower than I did this morning, just so you can linger on these scriptures that emphasize the importance of doing good. So let me read to you the seven verses. Titus 1.8. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Titus 2.3. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And in Titus 3.1, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Titus 3.8b, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. And now finally, and I'm sure Titus, when he first read this, says, okay, Paul, I get, I get it, I get it. <laughs> Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Seven verses, then, of Scripture, seven verses out of 46 that speak to this theme of doing good. Well, this morning now, I'm just going to like take a closer look at each of these verses. But before I do, let me just say two things of background information about this letter. 
When Paul wrote this New Testament letter his, to his ministry partner named Titus, he did so for the purpose of having Timothy or Titus appoint elders in every church. And he gave a lot of characteristics that he wanted to see in the life of those elders. Is he wanted elders who would actually reflect what true biblical ethics and lifestyle was all about. And he also wanted to tell Titus, hey, would you teach these new believers on the island of Crete what behaviors are consistent with the gospel? Secondly, I believe it's really important for us to understand that when Paul wrote this letter to Titus, life on this Mediterranean island, yes, sitting just south of Greece and modern-day Turkey, had sunk to a deplorable moral level. As one of their own prophets had said about themselves. In fact, Paul quotes him in this letter when he, where we read, Cretans, people living on the island of Crete, are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And I can sure some of you are thinking, man, he's a little hard on these people, isn't he? Keep in mind the person who said this considered himself the worst of all sinners. <laughs> Paul called an ace an ace and a spade a spade. <laughs> Furthermore, Paul's evaluation of this prophet's words were as follows. The saying is true. The saying is true. So it, against, so it is against this very deceptive, immoral, and self-indulgent culture that Paul writes to Titus, asking him to appoint elders with personal characteristics that would stand in sharp contrast to life on this island. Furthermore, it's why Paul was asking Titus to teach these new believers how to live in a manner that would be consistent, not with the culture, but with the glorious gospel of Christ. Well, you know, it kind of begs the question, if Paul was here today in the city of Kamloops, what three words would he use to describe our culture? It's an interesting question. Anyways, back to these seven verses. The first verse. Rather, he must be hospitable. Now, he's talking about elders in the church. Interesting that he must be hospitable. Guys, maybe we should have a weekend retreat on hospitality. One who loves what is good. And, of course, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because if your leader in your church, your elder in your church didn't love what is good, well, he wouldn't be much example to the flock, would he? Also, these other characteristics, self-controlled. You know this word shows up four times in this letter? Do you have a need for self-control? Anyone here this morning? Okay, thank you, Philippa. You and I have a need for self-control. The rest of them got this figured out. I ate far too many potato chips yesterday. <laughs> One serving would have been fine, but two is not good. Not to mention I had a chocolate bar as well. My wife doesn't know about that. <laughs> like self-control, like, you know, I'm so glad that the Holy Spirit uh, produces self-control in us. And, and boy, I need the Holy Spirit to produce self-control in my life. Also, the elders to be upright, holy, and of course, disciplined. You know, Karl Barth, um, this great theologian, was describing, what does it mean to do good? He defines it this way. To love what is good 
is to love what is right, is to love what is friendly, and to love what is wholesome. To love what is right, that's kind of like, you know, the ethical dimension of doing good. And then love what is friendly, like goodness is, is very social, right? And, and then wholesome, like it's just good for you. It's just good for you to go around doing good. For myself, you know, as I studied this letter to Titus, I came up with my own definition of doing good. It's about actions that are helpful to other human beings, other human beings. And of course, the book of Titus is full of many, many examples of of doing good. Yes, hospitality is one of them. One of them is simply loving your spouse. And and you know, it looks very different in every season of life. Keep asking yourself, what does it mean now to love your spouse in this particular season of life? Furthermore, friends, and I think this is really important, when Paul writes about doing good in this very short letter, he's talking about doing good in response to experiencing God's grace. Like, not for a moment, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me this morning. I'm not minimizing any good that anyone might do in this community simply because they're created in God's image And most certainly, Jesus understood that anyone is capable of doing good, even if they're tainted by sin. Because remember what Jesus says about uh, parents? You can be a miserable parent, but boy, when it came to your kids, you still love to give good gifts to them, don't you? No, the type of doing good we're talking about here this morning is especially the type of good that that is a response to God's grace given to us in Christ. Next verse, Titus 2, 3. And I really like this one. Likewise, teach the older women. And I I bet your lifespan at that period of time was probably maybe more like 60, not like 80, it is like it is now. So, hey, if you were older, you were probably on the other side of 30, right? (laughs) Anyways, to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanders or addicted to much wine. You wonder what kind of drinking problem they had on the island at Crete at that time, but to teach what is good. Now, among many other things that Titus really challenged the older women to teach is this, simply teach them what is good. You know, my understanding, Paul gave these instructions to Titus because he really believed the church should be a place where the older women are teaching the younger women. They're mentoring him, especially in the areas of marriage, parenting, and yes, self-control. Now personally, when I, I think this is a wonderful picture of what the church should be like. So may I say, may God fill our church with women who do just that. And you know, when I think of many of the younger women in our church already who are mentoring teenagers, and to do it week after week, after coming from their places of employment, I just take my hats off to younger women. So I just throw it out here today, younger women, that uh, you would prepare yourself in the days and months and years to come to be that person who can pass on the great truths of the faith and also the how-tos of the faith. Titus 2, 7. And this is a really big assignment. You might look at Titus, by the way, as a, um, a missionary mandate, mandate to this person, Titus. Uh, Paul was asking a lot of this man. I don't know how old he was at the time. 
But of all things he was asked, he says, I want you to set an example by doing what is good. And he's talking about being an example to the young men who were part of these congregations on the island of Crete. And you know, praise God for people like Titus who can in fact be a good example, not only to the generation coming up, but even to their own peers. You know, when you think about your own life, you think about the good examples you had. Boy, I had many of them along the way in all sorts of different occupations. There was a machinist by the name of uh, Stan Bain. And, um, oh, he, he lived a wild life before he came to Christ, but he was the boys' club leader. And what a great example Stan Bain was to me. And then there was another guy, Sandy Alexander. I don't think he went past grade three or four, but he was a wise man. He worked at the CN Railroad in Portman. Hmm. Then I think of a contractor by the name of Dewey DeVries who ran a contracting business. Um, he built the Pacific Way border crossing, if you've ever been across that, in Surrey. But he, he was just a good and honest man. I, I look up to him. Such a great model. And in the area of ministry... Uh, probably none greater mentor to me than a guy named Kel Netterfield. A few of you might know Kel. Kel, I, I met him when I was 18, and when I was 27, I joined him on staff at a church. St- Kel loved to preach. Oh, man, I don't know if I've ever met anyone who loved to preach. He kind of probably joined John Wesley in preaching three times a day. He was just that kind of guy. But I want to say most importantly thing about Kel, he set a great example to me and how to deal with the everyday challenges of church life. I mean, there's always challenges, right? Because we're all people. But he would stay in the trenches. He always was believed there's a solution. There's a way through this. And he never gave up. And to this day, I think his example has really had a lasting impact on me. You know, in the words of a person whose name I cannot even pronounce, they say this, nothing is, is so contagious as example. Nothing is so contagious as example. And I still remember a friend coming to me. In fact, he was in the first service. Didn't mention him by name in the first service, but his name is Kelvin Ward. At his dad's uh, celebration of life, uh, one of his dad's colleagues came up to Kelvin and said to him, your dad was a real Christian. (laughs) So obviously his dad was such a great example of what it means to be a Christ follower. Next verse, Titus 2.14. Who gave himself for us, yes, on a cross, to redeem us from wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. You know, when Christ died on the cross for us, he accomplished many, many many things. In fact, 50 things. It's all documented in a little book, The Passion of the Christ by John Piper. It's right there in our Bibles. Friends, that includes, obviously, that he died so that we could be forgiven. But look what the latter part of this verse says. He wanted to create a people for himself that are his very own. We belong to Jesus, friends. That's our identity. We belong to Jesus. And he wants to have a people that belong to him or eager to do what is good. Be assured then that when Christ died on your behalf, he was not only dealing with your sins, oh, he was profoundly dealing with our sins, but as well, he was seeking to change us from the inside out. 
so that we'd be a people who actually really, really do want to do good, even when no one is watching. That's what God's grace does. That's what the indwelling Holy Spirit seeks to produce through us. Therefore, do not be surprised if you have good desires welling up within you. Hmm. They will come. Because that's why he died. You know, I remember, I don't know how many years ago, there was a young man tragically killed out on a highway here. And a young couple who were actually sitting in the sanctuary this morning realized that this person should have a service. His family lived elsewhere. There was no one around who was going to put this on. So they came here and put this service on for this young man. I don't know, 45, 50 people were here. And it was a very meaningful way of acknowledging the importance of this person. Hmm. Where do these good ideas come from? Friends, I think God is always putting good ideas into our hearts. And the important thing is to act on them. I mean, this young couple could have talked all they wanted about, oh, this would be a great idea. But no, they needed to act on it. And because they did, they were agents of Christ's love to a lot of people who were hurting. Chapter 3, verse 1. And I'm sure Titus is saying, Paul, you really sure are stressing this whole thing about doing good, aren't you? But look at what he says here. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready to do whatever is good. You know, in this uh, verse and in the following verses, Paul encourages Titus to remind believers to do seven very specific things. And that includes being willing, being ready to do what is good. So I ask you, are you ready? Friends, we need to seize every opportunity we have to do good. And in the context, it really applies that we do do good in the places where we go each and every day, where we live, where we work, where we play. And yes, to all the people we meet in those places, and think about all the people you meet in the course of a day, but it starts at home, your spouse, your children, your colleagues, your employees, your friends, your patients, your customers, your acquaintances, and those who serve you in restaurants. And the reality is this, friends. Everywhere we go, there is usually something, even if it's really small, that we can do good. You know, I, I think here today of the late Lucy Pua, who was tragically killed down here not long ago. She worked at TRU. And I interviewed a lot of her colleagues at work. And without exception, they said this. When she came into the office in the morning, she would go to all the desks and just greet them, warmly greet them each and every day. Huh. I just think that's a beautiful way of living out your faith on the job. Chapter 3, verse 8. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Friends, this verse begins with Paul asking Titus to stress these things, which refers back to verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, where we are reminded that we've been saved not by good deeds, not for a moment, but by grace, by God's mercy. 
And that furthermore, in verse 7, that we're justified, in other words, declared righteous in the eyes of a holy God by grace, not by works. Yes, Titus was being asked to stress the mercy and grace shown to us in Christ. And how have we been shown that? So that in response, those who have trusted in what God has done for us in Christ would be careful then to devote ourselves to doing what is good. Once again, friends, all the doing good that Paul is talking in this letter flows from a life that clearly understands the grace and goodness of God. And now finally, one more verse here. Our people must learn, which kind of tells you this whole thing is a process. You know, when we're 40, we should be better doing, at doing good than we were at 30. And when we're 50, we should even get a little sharper because we understand what people really need, right? Hmm. Friends, when Paul penned these words, I have no doubt that he had in mind the people he was writing to. And they had a reputation for being lazy. Furthermore, it's interesting to note that when he addresses believers in this short letter, he reminded them at one time they were no different than anyone else. In fact, he lists ten vices, not three. He lists ten vices that used to characterize their life. And once again, keep in mind, this is the person who would say, hey, I'm the, I was the worst of all sinners before I encountered God's grace. So he's not really picking on the Cretans so much as he's just pointing out what is true. And again, I wonder, what three words would Paul use to describe our culture today? Well, let me conclude. The great theme, our great message, I think, of Titus is simply this. We are to be a people who are committed, devoted to doing what is good. But I think there's a better way of saying that. We are called to a life of doing good for all the right reasons. See, if we do good thinking that we're on this some performance treadmill or we're trying to earn God's favor, wow, what a terrible treadmill to put you on. I never want to be guilty of doing that to anyone. So what are the right reasons? Well, you know, actually, he gives us seven. I'm going to read them very quickly. Reason number one, so that no one would malign the word of God. Secondly, because young men need an example. Every generation of young men need a good example. Thirdly, so that those who oppose the gospel will have nothing bad to say about us. Fourthly, so that we will make the teachings about God our Savior attractive. And really, wasn't that Pastor Dave's message last week? Yes, we're called to community. We are most certainly called on mission. We are a giant missionary force. And we are most effective as a missionary force when we're loving one another in community and we're working towards unity as a community. Fifthly, because doing good is profitable for everyone. I, I hear people almost always say, oh, I just feel so good when I'm doing good. <laughs> well, of course you are. <laughs> you were designed to function that way. But, uh, but furthermore, friends, the people who are benefiting from when you do good also are feeling really good about it. Sixthly, so that we can provide for urgent needs. 
And that was, we have to put groceries on the table. In fact, some translations actually put the word here, uh, we must, uh, oh, I can't say it accurately, I better not say it at all. And furthermore, and not live unproductive lives. And Bob Verbray often reminds me that we need to get up every day and make a contribution. And in fact, actually, Paul was asking Titus to encourage the church to care for these two traveling missionaries who probably bought, brought this letter to Titus. Friends, most certainly Paul gives us a lot of good reasons why the Cretans and why us, why we should be involved in the whole process of, of devoting ourselves to a life of doing good. But I think the most important reason or cause, you might say, that Paul gives for doing good is because God's grace motivates us to a life of doing good. For the grace of God, friends, not only saves us, but it seeks to change us from the inside out. And I'll close with this final verse here. In chapter 2, he says this, it, and it refers to God's grace. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. So you might say grace has kind of a negative function to it. It's trying to root evil out of our lives. But furthermore, and to live, oh, there's that great word, self-controlled. Something I really need. I need to depend on grace to live a self-controlled life, an upright and godly life in this present age. And friends, that includes a life of doing good. Yes, God's grace, his unmerited, unearned favor towards us, saves us from our sins. But as well, God's grace motivates us and teaches us to live a life centered on God. And yes, a life of doing good. And may I add, for all the right reasons. Amen? Amen. This is God's word to us from this little letter that just takes a few minutes to read.